Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses, just two verses this morning. Verses 12 through 14, picking up where we left off last time. So let's read it, and then we will pray and dive in. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pray. Lord, we now turn our attention to the public preaching of your word. These are important verses for us to comprehend and to apply. So, Lord, this morning I ask that your word would be, as you said, powerful in our hearts and our minds. Spirit, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Gift me as I am not able apart from the help of the Spirit, to bring these things out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. These verses may be some of the most important verses in our Bible. All of Scripture comes to us with an equal authority, but not all Scripture is the same in its application or implications to our lives right away. But this passage has probably some of the most universal application in all of Scripture. It's passages like Romans 8, verses 12, 13, and 14 that make the Romans chapter 8 such an important chapter in our Bibles and such an important chapter in the book of Romans as well. And what Paul is calling us to here in large measure is what the Christian life is a lot about. Killing sin. The necessity to daily be at the work of killing sin in our lives. There's not a single Christian in this room who's not called to that responsibility. And there's not a single one of us in this room that doesn't daily feel and battle the flesh and at the same time also feel defeated by that, struggles to know how to apply what Paul is calling us to do here. So these are essential truths for us to grasp. Romans 8, especially verse 13, was such an important verse to John Owen, who is one of the the church's most important theologians that it's ever had, especially when considering the work of the cross. He wrote an entire book on it, and then two more books after that, building off this idea of what does it mean to kill sin or mortify the flesh. And he wrote his first book and just called it simply The Mortification of Sin. And he calls Romans 8 and verse 13 the foundation of mortification. So central a role is the mortification of sin that he wrote in his book, The Mortification of Sin, this quote, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. It's a central role in the lives of believers. John Piper wrote, in the foreword to an updated version of Owen's book on the mortification of sin, speaking about the necessity of the church to understand that this, the seriousness of indwelling sin. And he writes this, and I think it's helpful for us in setting up 
the importance of this passage and the necessity of killing and dwelling sin. He writes, When our people have not been taught well about the real nature of sin and how it works and how to put it to death, most of the miseries people report are not owing to the disease, but the symptoms. By that he means the outward manifestations. Now, see if you can identify with what he says here. They feel a general malaise and don't know why. Their marriages are at a breaking point. They feel weakened in their spiritual witness and devotion. Their workplace is embattled. Their church is tense with unrest. Their fuse is short with the children, etc. They report these miseries as if they were the disease and they want the symptoms removed. Mortification of sin is about dealing with the indwelling sin that remains in us. Romans 8 and verse 13, the instruction to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, when rightly appropriated, is more than just relief of symptoms. It's getting at the very root of our problem. Now, as we look at verses 12 through 14 this morning, Paul is concluding, he's drawing implications from everything he said in the prior 11 verses and even beyond that. And in short, what Paul is is telling us in these verses, if I could sum it up in this way, it's simply this, that life, peace, and joy in the Christian life is found when we, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body. When we put to death our sin. And so this morning what I want to do I want to make five observations about this work of mortifying the flesh. And then, if we have time, which we probably won't, conclude with some some practical steps we need to take to mortify the flesh. We probably won't get there. That will be a subsequent thing. But let's jump in first, though, with these five observations about mortifying the flesh. First of all, it's very simply this. Christians mortify the flesh. Christians mortify the flesh. Notice in verse 12, who is he addressing? Brothers. He's speaking to fellow believers. And this is an an especially important point for us to establish, especially in conversations where there's going to be exhortations to do things, and especially do things we struggle doing, don't feel we have the power to do, and things that often cause us to doubt God's love for us. So Paul wants to establish again, Who is it that's to be doing this? Brothers, right? He's saying all of the things that I've just taught you about justification by faith, by the the work of the Spirit in you, the union that you have with Christ, all of that is true. That doesn't change. That's all true. And now he's reminding us of those things because there is always a danger that we must battle thinking that God's disposition towards us changes by the things we do. And if you're in Christ, his disposition never changes towards you. To mortify the flesh, to battle against sin is a daily battle that we often feel that we are losing. And so when in in those times, we often ask, are all of these things true of me? If so, why do I feel this war within me? Why do I struggle so greatly? Why is this so hard? And what Paul is doing when he simply says, brothers, is reminding us that God's favor towards us never wavers. Right? His love is a steadfast and a sure love. 
We will fail in the work of mortification, but we put to death the deeds of the body, not out of fear of failing or out of fear of judgment, but we do it because our nature has been changed, our disposition has been changed, our desires have been changed, and we now have the power dwelling within us to actually do this work. So Christians mortify the flesh. So then we also need to discuss, what does he mean, though, when we talk about this? I'm using this word mortification, or Paul is saying, putting to death the deeds of the body, right? We, I, I'll use these interchangeably this morning. So I'm speaking of the same thing. Mortification is a term Christians have used for many years, and it, it means this. It's describing this intent intense process where we are seeking to root out and kill the passions of the flesh, kill the sin that dwells within our lives. Oftentimes, battling sin in our lives looks like me battling the weeds in my garden, and I have the worst of all weeds in the garden. I have Bermuda grass, which is great for golf courses, I think, but not great for gardens. Do you know what Bermuda grass, can you pull it out? from the roots, it's an impossibility, right? The roots go so deep into the ground, and I can pull the top off, but the root is often there, right? And mortification is not just about dealing with the little top bits of our sin, but it's about getting down to the very roots. What is it that causes me to do, to manifest in my flesh these things? Wants to get to the heart of the, the issue. Other Bible language we might use for mortification would be crucifixion, right? The the image actually of mortifying or putting to death is handing over for execution. And we can do this because we have a Savior who was handed over and executed, crucified for us, becoming sin for us. So now it's true, what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We've been crucified with Christ and now, Galatians 5, verse 24, we crucify the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The idea behind have is it's an ongoing, there's ongoing implications of this. It's an active word in the Greek, right? So we actively seek to put to death, to crucify, to hand over for execution our sin. And then notice as well, Christians mortify the flesh. What is it that we're trying to to kill here? There's a number of passages that you can go to where you think about the, we read it earlier in Galatians 5, Right, where Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Right? We can see these things manifested in our lives. But I think maybe a more helpful way to summarize it would be to express it this way. The works of the flesh or our flesh are uses of our body and our mind to serve ourselves instead of God and others. Uses of our body and our mind to serve ourselves instead of God and others. I think when we talk about the flesh crucifying or mortifying the flesh, we all instinctually can think of things in our lives that are recurring patterns, recurring thoughts, battles that we deal with, and when we hear the command, put to death the deeds of the body or mortify the flesh, you go, 
I got a pretty good idea of stuff, right, in my life to mortify. It's these things that we are to be diligently seeking to root out and kill. So Christians, those who are forgiven of all their sins, freed from the condemnation, we are to put to death the deeds of the body and the mind that do not serve God. So observation one, Christians mortify the flesh. This leads to observation number two, Christians are debtors, and we get this from verse 12, right? Brothers, we are debtors. Now, the thing that's interesting here is Paul doesn't finish his thought. He's saying we are debtors in a positive sense. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Then he tells us what we're not to be indebted to. And he doesn't finish the thought because it's inferred from the rest of the passage and from the, the previous verses as well, right? The fact that we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means that our new obligation or our indebtedness is to righteousness. It's to the Spirit. But what Paul does want us to understand, what he does make very clear, is who we are not indebted to, who we, know, who we owe no obligation to, and that is the flesh. And this is extremely important for us to understand as we seek to mortify the flesh. We must understand we are not debtors to the flesh. Go back to verse 11, and you see what? We have the Spirit dwelling within us, the end of verse 11. This means, then, that we are no longer held captive to the flesh, to the condemnation of the law, and to the power of sin. You can also see this in Romans chapter 6. Paul is trying to argue very clearly since we've been crucified with Christ and buried and raised to walk with him in newness of life, we no longer live or are enslaved, serve the, the, our flesh and our sin in the same way. All right? When we were under sin and enslaved to our flesh, we were obligated to obey it. And by that, it means we had no real power to say no. Right? We have no power to say no to the temptations of our flesh. We're obligated to obey it. But now, we have the Spirit. And even though we still have this sin principle remaining within us, and we still live in flesh, we are not obligated to obey it. And this is so crucial to understand because every battle that we have with the flesh is a battle to think rightly about who we are obligated to obey and who we are not obligated to obey. When we battle the flesh, it is a a battle to think rightly about who we are obligated to obey and who we are not. Every time your flesh rears its ugly head and, and you feel within you desires to obey the flesh, you feel the flesh is telling you you are obligated to obey it, we must learn I'm not. I'm not indebted to it in that way. I'm not in debt to live to the flesh. And Paul goes on to say, why? Right? To live according to the flesh is to live as those who are dead in their sin and headed towards eternal death and separation from God. But we're not if we're in Christ. Because we have the the Spirit indwelling us, we are not obligated or indebted to live according to the flesh so Christians are debtors. This is observation number two. Christians are debtors, debtors to the Spirit and to righteousness, 
not to the flesh. This leads to observation number three. Notice that the verse event, at the end of verse 13, Paul says that you will live if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So observation number three is simply this. Christians experience life when they mortify the flesh by the Spirit. Notice that's a, there's a promise that is attached to that instruction. If you mortify the flesh by the Spirit, you will live. Now, when Paul is speaking here of life or living, I don't think he's speaking about it in any, an eternal sense. I think what he's actually doing is speaking about it in a similar way to he did back in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, he ends, he says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Right? It's, it has implications for now, peace right now, life right now. When Paul is speaking about that idea of life and peace, he's speaking about, I think, a living in a state of bliss, a state of joy and delight and satisfaction, right? The hope of the Christian is not simply bliss in a world to come, it's absolutely that, but it is a sense of joy and delight now. And I think according to Romans eight thirteen, we experience that as we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit now. This reality does not diminish this necessity for activity on our part, right? That's what Paul is calling us to, right? And because of the complete and totalness of our salvation, we can actively put to death the deeds of the body right now. And I would submit this, though, that, a lar- that by and large, lack of joy and peace and delight in our lives comes from sin, right? And not mortifying sin, a failure to diligently seek to kill it in our lives, right? A laziness in this work of mortification, of putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, leads to spiritual lethargy, coldness, a sense of disconnectedness, and all the other things that come, come with it. And then this causes us to lead and to settle for lesser joys, right? We find delight in other things, or we think we find delight, but it never satisfies. It continually fail us. John Owen said that the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh, right? You want a vibrant, growing, healthy Christian life? We diligently then seek to mortify sin in our lives. So for Christians, life right now is experienced as we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Observation number four. Christians mortify the flesh by the Spirit. Christians mortify the flesh by the Spirit. Now I want you to notice in the second half of verse 13, a conditional word, if Right? He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this means a couple of things. And I want to I spend a few moments on this. There are several implications, I think, to be drawn out from this conditional word, if, right? The first one is simply this. A person could not mortify the deeds of the flesh. And what's, their, what's the outcome of that? death, right? 
right? That's what he's already addressed in the first half of the verse, right? A person could not mortify their flesh leads to death. These people will die. Secondly, I think this is where we often struggle in the Christian life in mortifying sin, right? We can feel guilt and conviction over our sin, and then we try to mortify it by means other than the Spirit, all right? We try to, to get rid of our sin, but not in the, by the means God has provided. I have three ways that we do this, right? First of all would be this. We diminish our sin, right? We make excuses for our sin. We blame shift. We, we say, we explain it away. We say, well, that, I, was, I was born that way, right? Is this not an attempt at mortification, right? The problem, though, is that it's not a mortification of sin. What is it? It's a mortification of guilt. I don't like these feelings. I don't want to get them to go away, and so I explain away the feelings by diminishing my sin. I feel bad about it, so I try to put the blame elsewhere. So we do not mortify the flesh by the Spirit by diminishing our sin. We don't mortify the flesh by the Spirit when we try to mortify our sin with our own strength or willpower, all right? Think about this. There are non-Christians who can overcome addiction in their life. Think about a 12-step program, right? An alcoholic can stop drinking and never drink again, but have they mortified their sin? Have they dealt with the, the sin principle within them, the heart behind their sin? No, they haven't, right? We also can seek to mortify the flesh in our own strength and power by lowering the standard. Maybe this relates even to the last point as well. But have you ever said or heard other people say, I failed my own standard, right? I didn't live up to my my standard. I'm better than this. I've let myself down, right? Again, that's an attempt at mortification in our own strength and power. It is, mortification is attainable when the bar is low and a low that you set, right? We don't set goals for ourselves that we can't attain, but when I set an attainable goal and then I fail it, well, I've not lived up to my own standard. And the problem with mortifying the flesh in our own strength is is the the problem Paul brought out in chapter 7. There's no gospel power, right? There's no power of the Spirit, right? All you have is a law standing over you telling you do better, try harder next time, right? But you, and, but you don't, it doesn't empower you actually to do what it commands you to do. Another way to identify, I think, mortification not by the Spirit is there's no prayerful dependence upon the Spirit, right? There's no submission to the Word of God. There's no gospel hope. There's no grace. There's no peace. There's only guilt and the feeling of condemnation. So we can try and mortify sin in our own strength and power, and it will always fail us. The third way I think that we might try to mortify the flesh by the Spirit, or not by the Spirit, would be this. It's we view means as the end. What I mean by that is we are Christians, and so we want to apply the means that God has given to us to deal with sin in our lives, right? So things like prayer, Fasting, Bible reading, meditation, these are excellent, but they're means, not the end. Oftentimes we think, well, if I just do this, 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 and this, then that problem will go away. 
And it's not always that simple, right? Just doing things is not what produces mortification. I like John Owen was talking about this, and he, he said this, this view of mortification is that these things are streams from the fountain, not the fountain itself. All right, so often we can, we can go through the ritual of Bible reading, prayer, meditating on it, but not, and, and, and focus on the acts themselves, not the person to whom the acts are meant to help us know. So we will be left disappointed. So a person could not mortify their flesh and they will die. They could seek to mortify the flesh by means other than the spirit, but that is fruitless. And so that leads us to the third condition, right? Through the help of the Spirit, we can actually mortify the flesh, right? That's Paul's entire point in this entire passage. The Spirit of God is the source of power behind our putting to death the deeds of the body. Seek to mortify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit is the one who enables us and empowers us to do that. Think about the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. What there was promised. Do you remember? The Lord said, I will put my spirit within them. I will write my law on their hearts and I will cause them to walk in my ways. That's the work of the spirit. This is how mortification happens in our lives. It's a spirit-empowered activity. And as well, with this, we've also been given a weapon. What is it? Ephesians chapter 6, the one offensive tool we have. It's the Word of God, right? We've been given the sword of the Spirit. We've been given this positive tool to help us fight and kill sin in our lives. So the Spirit gives us the desire, the power, the ability, and the tool in the Word of God to put to death the deeds of the body. So that leads us to one final conclusion here point number five or observation number five christians can only mortify the flesh as they are led by the spirit we see this in verse 14 for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god this final conclusion paul wants us to see and he gives this concluding thought about those who mortify their flesh by the spirit what does he say about them They're being led. They're being led by the Spirit in this. And the primary way that the Spirit leads us in mortifying the deeds of the body and killing sin is through His Word, right? This is what we just talked about. And this is what Pastor Jess's sermon last week was all about, right? How do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? We fill ourselves with His Word, His Spirit-inspired Word, right? If the Spirit leads us and empowers us to mortify the deeds of the body, then the way He is going to lead us in that mortification is through His Word, causing us to see the areas of our life that we must mortify, and then through the Word, assuring us that we have the power to do it, and then instructing us and training us how to do it. Uh, in Titus chapter 2, right, it says we have the grace of God that teaches us or trains us in godliness and righteousness. So the word of God trains us and empowers us, assures us that this work of mortification can be done. 
So all of these observations mean this, simply that Christians are to actively and intently root out and kill the deeds of the body. All right? We owe no debt to our fleshly desires. When our flesh makes demands of us and tries to make us feel obligated to obey it, we can say, no, we don't have to give in to that feeling. We do this work of mortification by the power and enablement of the Spirit who dwells in us. And as we do this work, we experience life and joy and peace in this life. So I want to give you just... I'm a a point-driven guy. I can't help it. That's just the way I think, right? So here's four broad points about how we mortify sin in our lives by the Spirit. The Bible does not give us a 12-step system or a program that says, if you do this, 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 you get this outcome. It gives us principles. And by the help of the Spirit, godly counsel in our lives, we seek to apply these things to specific areas of our life that we are seeking to mortify. Here's some big points. Number one, you must see your sin clearly, right? And this goes back to earlier when I was talking about how we don't mortify our sin. We can't do it if we're downplaying it or explaining it away. We must see it clearly. We must take ownership of our sin, accept the consequences, taking responsibility. We must see see it for what it is, and see who it is against. All right, think about Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the holiness of God, the, the glory of God in the temple, and he feels undone because he recognizes his sin. We can do this as we identify the works of the flesh in our lives. Galatians 5 talks about it, Ephesians 5. Think about 1 Peter 2, verse 11, where he says, there are passions of the flesh that make, way, that make war against your soul. You must identify those things. James talks about the nature of temptation. We must think about those things that we are tempted by and that we continually give into. That's how we identify these sins in our lives. And then, more than just the externals, we need to begin to ask probing questions of our heart. And this is the hard part. And this is where we really do need oftentimes help to do this. But we need to ask questions like, what is the heart desire behind the things that I do? Why do I continue to respond in certain ways? What is it that I want? What's motivating me? All right, we, we have to realize that our sin is more than just outward manifestations, but there's desires internally that I want, right? That's why Jesus says, in, in Matthew, right, that if you look on a woman to lust after her or a man, right, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? Jesus is always trying to get us to the heart. So first of all, you must see your sin clearly. Secondly, you need to adopt new and right ways of thinking. Adopt new and right ways of thinking. This is where it's so helpful when Paul starts out this instruction with the word brothers, Right, because he wants us to not forget who we are in Christ. Right, continually remind yourself and preach to yourself the truth of who you are, because our sin is always causing us to doubt that. If you're in Christ, remind yourself of the truths that are true of you. Those of us who want to obey the scriptures 
and mortify the flesh without a continual growing apprehension of the truth that the Bible teaches about who we are, we will struggle in this area and not make the progress that we want to. Don't ever forget who we are in Christ. Passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an essential thing to comprehend in our minds and in our hearts when we feel continually condemned by the flesh. So adopt new and right ways of thinking about your relationship to God. Also, you need to think about the, the, the things that our flesh that we deal with, think rightly about what it's saying, all right? Our flesh, our battles with it, it is speaking to us, right? It is telling us things that are not true. We must counteract those things with the truth of God's word, right? What does God say in his word that is true and counteract the false things that our flesh and our desires are speaking Right? These are things oftentimes that we feel, right? God can't love me because of this. Well, what does God's word say to that? Or, this has power over me and I'll never get out of it. What would be a right way, according to the Bible, to think about that? Or, maybe we think it's not that big of a deal, or it's a little sin, a little white lie, it's not that big of a deal. What, is, what does God's word say about those things? So adopt new and right ways of thinking. Third, fill your mind with the things of the Spirit, right? And this is what Pastor Jess' sermon last week was all about, right? We do this through the Word. You want to set your mind on things of the Spirit? You must fill your mind with the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 we're familiar with, right? Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And we can simply go, well, I don't get drunk. I don't even drink wine, But yet there are ways that we can easily fill our minds with other things. And I do think in an entertainment-driven society, we can easily fill our minds with other things that may not be wrong in and of of themselves, but they do distract us. They do distract us from this work of mortification. Our minds can be so filled with other things that we have little capacity left to think on things of the flesh. Finally, point number four, appropriate by faith the things of the Spirit. Appropriate by faith the things of the Spirit. So simply here, I think, do some of these things. Confess your sin, right? Agree with God what you've done is wrong, right? We do this every week in our service to practice and to model what that should look like every day for us. Confessing our sin. Or if you've sinned against others, confess it to them. And then, very simply, we do what the Bible says to do and not to do. And that, that, I say that simple, and then you also say, yeah, but that's also the hardest part, right? Like, that's the most challenging thing. But that's what living by faith is, right? It is believing what God has said and acting upon it. You say, don't do this? Okay, then you tell me I have the Spirit dwelling within me. I've died with Christ. I've been raised with Him. I can crucify the flesh. By His power, I'm not going to. Living by faith also means we need to take drastic measures to mortify the flesh, right? When we truly believe what God has said, we will take measures to do that or not do that, right? We will, we will seek to 
eradicate that sin from our lives. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 says, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close. Right? Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5. If your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what do you cut it off? He's not saying that he's speaking in hyperbole, but he's speaking about the drastic natures we must take to strike at the root causes of our sin. The purpose is to snuff out the life and power of the lusts and the temptations we deal with. I know I fall into similar patterns of behavior. I need to identify why it is and how I'm tempted, and I need to do things to cut that off. Finally, I just add this. Don't neglect other areas of our lives which may not be as pervasive. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, you go read it on your own. But we can, we can often tend to overlook other little things in our lives. Jerry Bridges wrote the book, Respectable Sins, which is all about the little sins, right? Gossip, slander, gluttony, the little white lie. We think like, those aren't the big, I have this big, huge thing in my life, which is oftentimes how we we do. But then there's also lots of little things that we don't really think of. And the reality is, is that we need to be seeking to eradicate all of those things from our lives. Don't overlook smaller sins. Or sometimes we, we live this way. We get mastery over one sin, and then we think, hey, I'm pretty good. I got nothing left to deal with. We must be diligent to mortify every sin in our lives by the help of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and its sharpness and how it cuts to our hearts. Lord, every one of us is indwelling that remains within us and we need the help of the Spirit to kill it. So Lord, cause us to be earnest about this, not to think this is an optional thing for super spiritual Christians but that it is for us, every one of us, to be committed to this work every day in our lives. Help us to, by faith, appropriate these things and by the Spirit's power to have victory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.